Open your Bibles to John chapter 20. As I was thinking about this passage of Scripture and where we are in the Gospel of, of John, where we are in the account of the revelation of Christ, thinking back to many, many, many weeks ago when we celebrated the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem, into a parade-like atmosphere, Jesus entered and the throngs of people had covered the streets, they had covered the roads with palm branches and they waved them, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus was heralded as the soon-to-be coronated Messiah. And that was the highlight of Jesus' ministry from a worldly perspective. For those who were looking around, who were looking for the consolation of Israel, for those who were expectant for the Messiah to come and to establish a physical earthly throne and restore Israel back to its former days of glory, this was the highlight. Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And then as we began to study, from that point forward... There was a slow and steady downward spiral as Jesus met with his disciples in the upper room and instituted the Lord's Supper and told them that he would be betrayed, that Peter would deny him, that he would be handed over and that he would be killed, that he was leaving them and where he was going they could not yet come. And there was such a somber atmosphere within the hearts and the lives of the disciples from that announcement. And many, many weeks ago, we began our exploration of what took place after that, including the terribly unjust trials that Jesus had gone through when he was sitting before the godly religious leaders of Israel and had every viable legal proceeding violated so they could oppose upon him a death sentence, handed him over to the brutal ruthless, secular, godless Romans who would then decide that he was not guilty, but hey, we'll appease you and kill him anyway. And there's this slow and steady downward spiral. If you were writing a fictional story, if you were going to do a movie or a play or something else, what we come to today right now is the climax This is the peak of the story. This is what the whole thing was all about. And this is exactly where we find ourselves as we begin to look at the resurrection of Christ. This heavy content has weighted us down with the reality of Jesus' sinlessness, of our own sinfulness and our own unworthiness, of the Father decidedly handing Him over to the whims of sinful man, We had this great weight, this great sense of dread, this unjust death, and now we come to the other page. We said last week that it was Friday, but Sunday was coming, and in the context of our story, Sunday is here. The one who was brutally and viciously and unjustly nailed to the cross was now going to raise himself through the power of the Father and the Spirit, from the dead, to assume His rightful place. So the focal point of God's eternal plan of redemption, the event that would render Satan powerless and provide eternal victory to those who place their faith in Christ, is here. One undeniable certainty of life is that it will someday end. Are you aware of that? 
Unless the Lord comes back for His church, unless you are one of the rare few like Enoch who's not going to die a physical death, we are all going to die. Death is inevitable, and the Bible is filled with references that underscore that reality. Job 14, verses 1 and 2, Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. The Apostle Peter picked up on that same strain of thinking when he said in 1 Peter 1.24, All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. The Bible is replete with examples of how our lives will blossom like a flower, but it will wither and it will die. Death casts a long and painful shadow over every aspect of man's existence. It ends his dreams. It mocks his hopes. It fills him with an absolute sense of dread. And for centuries, mankind has tried to cheat death to avoid the inevitable. It's not been that long ago that the science of cryonics was invented, and it has emerged in an effort to suspend our death in such a way so that at some unknown point in the future, life can be infused back into our frozen bodies and that we can live again. From the science of cryogenics, quote, a speculative life support technology that seeks to preserve human life in a state that will be viable and treatable by future medication. Man will stop at nothing to prolong his life. The end of days just can't come. My life has to continue. No man can permanently cheat death. Whether or not the science of cryogenics ever amounts to anything, we read this in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. The Bible portrays death as an enemy. It is greatly feared, but the good news is this. With the inevitability of death, with the reality that our lives, which once bloomed like a flower that will one day wither, this inevitability of death is erased through the good news of Jesus Christ, and that is very simply this, Jesus has conquered death. John 8.51, he said, Truly I say to you, if if anyone keeps my word, he will never See death, John 11, 25 and 26, as he spoke to Martha, the grieving, as she was grieving the loss of Lazarus, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. John 14, 19, Jesus promised the disciples, after a little while the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live you will live also. And because this is true, and because we believe this in the depth of our hearts, we can agree with what the Apostle Paul has written in 1 Corinthians 15. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe in this victory? Do you live in the light of this victory? And are we willing to share this victory with those who are dreading the inevitability of death? 
You see, this is what the resurrection story is all about. It's not a fairy tale that, de- that is designed to give to us a happy ending. It is God's eternal plan of salvation realized in the life and death and resurrection of His one and only Son so that you and I can face the inevitability of death with great confidence and with great joy knowing that our death will usher us into the eternal presence of God the Father where we will see Him in all of His glory. Throughout His life, Jesus performed countless miracles that demonstrated His divine power. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He even raised those from the dead. But nothing reveals the greatness of His power than His own resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus was a divine affirmation of His atonement accomplished at the cross. When God raised Jesus from the dead, He declared that He was appeased by Jesus' sacrifice and had accepted it as a payment in full for the sins of His people, completely satisfying the demands of His holy justice. And Romans 4.25 celebrates this reality. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions, the reason He was dead and was raised because of our justification, the reason that He would be raised to life. It is impossible to believe in in the Jesus of the Bible without believing that He rose bodily from the dead. If you don't believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you cannot be a believer. Those who reject the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ remain outside the sphere of salvation. Why can I say such a thing? Because that's exactly what Scripture says, Romans 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. What that means is very simply this. Anyone who doesn't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is disqualified from salvation based upon the truth and the authority of God's Word. The climax of God's eternal plan of salvation, the whole purpose of Jesus' incarnation is realized in His death and in the victory given to us through His resurrection. Let's read together now in our passage of Scripture, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and a face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. Now we're going to look at this resurrection passage in two weeks because of its length. 
And so we're going to look at this section in three very simple points. Number one, it is caring for the body. It's not stated here in the Gospel of John, but what we read in verse 1 is that on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So we learn here that Mary arrives at the tomb early on Sunday. It is the third day as Jesus prophesied, but it's interesting that all of the Gospel accounts call this day the first day of the week. So the Passover has ended and Mary is still fixated on the death of Christ. Now you'll notice that John says here that it was still dark. There's a lot of speculation about the variances that we read in the resurrection account based upon John's record and the record of the other three Gospels. It's very, very difficult to try to assimilate these variances in a seamless way, but there are some reasonable explanations as to why there are some minor differences between them. So the Passover is ended, and Mary and the other women, they want to go to the tomb. And the reason the New Testament churches meet for worship on Sunday is that Sunday, the first day of the week, became known as Resurrection Day. It would later become known as the Lord's Day and has become the pattern for Christian worship ever since. We see this in the book of Acts, but it's also noted in Revelation 1.10, far after the book of Acts was compiled, when John the, the Apostle says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, worshiping on the first day of the week, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. It was Paul's practice to go to the synagogue on the first day of the week, which would be Sunday, the day after the Sabbath, and began to engage the teachers and the people who were there. Now, the other Gospels record that Mary had others with her, Mary the mother of James and also Salome, but John chooses to focus just on Mary Magdalene. John doesn't tell specifically why the women went to the tomb, but the other Gospels do. In fact, what it says in Mark 16:1 that when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. So this was the reason that they were going to the tomb after the Passover had ended on the first day of the week, and that was to anoint the body of Jesus. Now, if you remember, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took responsibility for securing the body of Christ. Joseph provided his very own tomb for Jesus to be laid in, and Nicodemus brought 65 pounds of oils and spices by modern weight standards in order to prepare Jesus for burial. But Nicodemus and Joseph did that alone, and here the women want to participate in the anointing of Jesus' body for burial. So when Mary arrives, she notices that the stone has been moved. Now this is where the plausible explanation for the variances in the gospel accounts can be explained. So it's possible that as Mary is approaching the tomb with the other women, she sees the empty tomb and immediately leaves and runs back to report to the disciples. 
Now, this stone has been removed. There's no mention of the large stone that is covering the tomb. This is where the stone covering the tomb is introduced to us. Now, Mark recorded that the need to move the stone was a concern to the women as they were on the way to visit the body of Jesus. And as they arrived at the site, they noticed that it had already been moved. Now, most historians said that the stone was likely laid in place on a very slight downward slant, and the woman likely had no way of moving that stone themselves because of its size and its weight, and there were some challenge into how they were going to remove the stone and get in in order to anoint the body of Christ. Now, if in fact Mary saw the stone rolled away and immediately left and didn't go with the other women to the empty tomb, it's very possible that what is recorded in the other gospel accounts that John doesn't focus on because this focus on Mary Magdalene makes a lot of sense. For example, when the women arrive at the tomb, what is it that they encounter? They encounter angels who say, why are you looking amongst the, the, the dead, amongst the living for the dead? And he is not here. He has risen just as he said. One account says there was an angel, another sitting on the stone. Another account says there were two angels in the tomb. But what we can gather from a compilation of the gospel accounts is that it's possible that Mary saw the stone rolled away and immediately left to report it to the disciples. The other women went on to the tomb to see what was taking place, and there they encountered the angel at the tomb. Now, it's interesting, when you look at the apostles, Peter and John specifically, when they enter the tomb here in the Gospel of John and also in the other Gospel accounts there is no mention of any angel. So we don't really know how all of this is assimilated together but what we do know is that John is choosing to focus on Mary and so his narrative is missing some of the facts that the other Gospel accounts provide and it fills in some of the story that John chooses not to provide. It's possible that the other gospel accounts were already circulating, and John assumed that people would already know some of these details. It's possible that John thought that they weren't significant to his main purpose. It's all speculation, but this is some of the variances that we see, and this is one of the rational explanations for why it is this way. So Mary sees that the stone has been rolled away, it's very concerning to her. How did the stone get moved? Who is responsible for having it moved? And what is the result to Jesus if, in fact, somebody has moved this with some kind of an ulterior motive that they would not be pleased with? Well, Matthew provides the answer with how the stone was rolled away. Matthew 28.2 Behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. Now, as this happened, the other Gospel accounts record that the guards who were watching the, stone, watching the stone at the front of the tomb, were trembling and were like dead men. And here is this angel who has appeared, and the stone has rolled away, and they are in absolute shock as to how this has come to be. Now remember that these are Roman soldiers. These are the most highly trained warriors of the day. 
And it would take a pretty significant band of armed men to be able to come in, overpower the guards, and move the stone and take the body of Christ away. Now, it's not coincidental that we would read, that we would read later in the book of Acts that the religious leaders bribed the Roman soldiers and told them that the disciples came and stole the body and somehow they were rendered powerless in stopping this from happening. So the angel didn't move the stone so that Jesus could out, so that Jesus could get out. Jesus wasn't dependent upon the stone being moved in order to get out, but the stone was rolled away so that when the women and the disciples arrived at the tomb, they would know that Jesus is not here. Jesus didn't need that big heavy stone to be moved. He had simply disappeared out of the tomb, unbeknownst to the Roman guards who were standing charge over it, And this is, in fact, what the angels announced to the people as they gathered. Now, John is silent about this important fact. He is also silent about the conversation that has taken place between the the women and the angels. So, Mary has gone to the tomb. She has seen that it's rolled away, and she is frightened by what she has seen. That brings us to number two in our outline, and that is discovering a tragedy. Verse 2 says, So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we, her and the other women, do not know where they have laid him. Now again, it's possible that Mary has gone back, the other women have gone forward, and she assumes that the other women are thinking and fearing the same way that she is. So she goes back and is reporting to the disciples. She raises to tell Peter and John what she has seen, that the stone has been rolled away, and it would make sense that she would seek Peter and John out because they were the leaders of the, of the eleven, of the twelve and now the eleven, since Judas was now dead. You have James, Peter, and John, and so it's very, it makes very, very good sense that she would go back and seek out to find Peter and John and report this to them, and she reports to them that the grave is empty. Now, what is interesting about this is that John doesn't tell us that she looked in. We can assume that Mary believed the tomb to be empty because of what it is she reports back to Peter and to John. Since she didn't hear the report of the angels who said, he's not here, he's risen, as he said, and why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? We can assume that she wasn't there to hear that. She didn't go back to Peter and John to say something that would be contradictory to what the angels had said. So I think it makes sense that she saw the stone rolled away. She left, didn't go down. The other women heard the conversation between the angels and she has raced back to Peter and John and she has feared the worst and her worst fear is very simply that his body has been stolen. This is exactly what she records. In her estimation, there would be no other reason for someone to move the stone away away from the face of the tomb except to steal the body. Now Jesus is gone They don't know where he has been laid. They don't know that he has been raised. She only assumes that robbers have come 
and taken the body of Christ. At this point in the climax of God's plan of redemption, it is important to note that they still don't understand everything that Jesus has said. It didn't click together for them, as John recounts at the end of of the section of our passage today, that Jesus was raised from the dead just as he said he would be. So this brings us to number three in our outline, and that is they raised to the tomb. Peter and John, Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead. Excuse me, the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And so they arrive. They certainly see the stone that has been moved. There's no indication that the other women are still there. What the other gospel accounts record is that at some point later the women recount to the disciples the conversations they had with the angels. But at this point in John's account, there are no women and there are no angels. There's just the empty tomb, and here is John and Peter arriving at the tomb. So John arrives, but, but John doesn't record that he has looked into the tomb. But when he looks in, verse 5, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. So John looks inside, and quickly after, Peter arrives, but Peter, being bold and brash and not content to stand on the outside, goes into the tomb, and verse 6 records, and so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. Now, Peter is in the tomb, John is outside the tomb but looking in, and they both see the exact same thing. The linens are neatly arranged. It says they see the linen wrappings, and in the Greek, the way these words are phrased, it means wrapped together or still in their fold. What that means is, the linen wrappings that were a part of Jesus' grave clothes, if you will, were laying there just like they were placed on his body. They were not moved. They were not folded. They were not disturbed. It was almost as like Jesus simply evaporated out from underneath the linen wrappings and they laid on the, on the stone that he was very likely placed upon just as if he was still there, but he wasn't. If you remember, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus came wrapped in his burial clothes, remember? He still had all the stuff, and Jesus said, unbind him, take his grave clothes off of him, he's no longer dead. So Jesus' body is absent, and all the linens are still there, and it's impossible to separate linens from the body in such a good order. You remember that, it's not a magic trick, but you remember that trick where somebody would have a a, a big tablecloth and they would have a big table arrangement on top of it and they would take that tablecloth and they would snap it out and all of the glassware and the plates and the silverware would remain on the table. They would not fall off, not turn over. You've seen that before, right? Well, even with the ability to do that, that stemware, that silverware, is not exactly where it was. It would have moved a little bit. But John and Peter see the grave clothes of Jesus precisely where it was laid had he still been underneath them. Now, one of the theories Mary was working on, and what was later said 
by the religious leaders is that grave robbers or the disciples came and stole the body. But if you were going to rob a grave, not only, not only would you not be able to place the linens exactly where they were, but you likely wouldn't separate the linens from the dead body, would you? You would just grab the body and you'd get out as fast as you possibly could. Well, Matthew tells us that the stone covering... I'm sorry, Matthew also tells us that the stone covering the grave was not unattended, but the guards were still stationed there, which makes the plausibility of grave robbers even less likely. So verse 7 continues, And the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. And so what we could conclude from this is that Jesus has evaporated out from underneath the linen coverings, has taken the face cloth off of himself and has rolled it up and set it in a separate place from where the linen cloths were laying on the bench where he likely would have been laid when he was prepared by Joseph and Nicodemus. Nicodemus. So the face cloth is also neatly rolled up and in a separate place. Robbers would not have rolled it up if they would have removed it. They likely would have left the clothes and the face cloth intact and taken everything quickly. You know, when you're going to do a burglary, you generally either make a big mess and leave it, but you don't make a big mess and then put it back together, do you? You want to get in and you want to get out. So this theory of grave robbers and the idea that Mary had that someone had come and stolen the body is really put to rest by the reality of what had taken place with the grave clothes in the tomb. So verse 8 continues, the other disciples, the other disciple who had first come to the tomb when they also entered, he, and he saw and believed. Now this is John's editorial note that when he went in and saw the empty tomb, he believed. Now, both Peter and John have seen the same thing, and they both probably believe that Jesus is alive. They probably don't think that his body has been stolen, but I'm not sure that they can really put together what Jesus being alive actually means. So the empty tomb and the undisturbed grave clothes, the face cloth, face cloth rolled up were enough for Peter and John, but they still didn't understand everything, and that's exactly what John says in verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So they see something peculiar. Perhaps they're remembering some of what Jesus had previously said. They can't put it all together. They believe, but they don't truly understand. But they'd seen enough to believe that Jesus wasn't stolen, but they aren't really sure how to explain what has taken place. So the disciples go home to wait. Verse 10, the disciples went away again to their own homes. Now, Matthew and Mark record that the angels have instructed the disciples to go back to Galilee, and this instruction has come after they have returned back from the tomb. And so they're instructed to go to Galilee and to wait for him there. Why? Because Jesus is going to meet them there. So they go back to their homes to wait. What were they thinking? What would you be thinking? How long would they have to wait? Was Jesus really alive? 
what was going to happen next. They've seen things that they can't fully understand. They've experienced this powerful, miraculous Christ who was killed. They've seen it themselves. They saw Him put into the tomb. They see Him no longer in the tomb. They don't know what's going to happen. The stage is set now for the many appearances that Jesus is going to make to His followers. This would erase any doubt about what happened to Jesus, the resurrected Christ. This dreary, sorrowful, downward spiral the disciples have been on is about to be erased. The horror of seeing Jesus dead on the cross and placed into the tomb is going to be erased when he appears in just a short amount of time. The remaining section in John is filled with grace and hope and joy. And I'm looking forward to being able to share that in the weeks ahead. Would you join me in prayer, please? Our Father, we give you thanks that all that we've been experiencing through the trials of Christ, through His betrayal and denial, through the beating and the scourging and the death on the cross, the sadness and the sorrow of seeing Him breathe His last and then to be placed into the tomb, we know it's all been erased and these disciples are about to learn firsthand that Jesus is alive, that He is the one and only, that He is the Messiah sent from the Father, not to establish a physical kingdom, but a spiritual one, one that they would seek to fulfill as best they could through their apostolic ministry. We live so many days beyond this incredible and amazing experience, and I pray, Father, that its significance would not be lost on us. That we would be filled with the same sense of awe and wonder and joy and hope as we deal with the reality of the resurrected Christ. Father, how we thank you for allowing us to know this truth. May we celebrate this with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all of our strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing.